Mark chapter 8, um, starting at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear and don't remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did, did you pick up then? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. As Charlie mentioned earlier, we're wrapping up what's been a very quick journey through Mark. Um, Mark's the sort of book that you can do that with. It's sort of a, a collage of snapshots of Jesus, his words and his works. And um, it's a bit like, you know how people arrange their bookshelves differently? I was having a conversation with some friends the other day about the way you stack your bookshelves and what it says about you. 
There's some people who like to arrange their books in alphabetical order with the, you know, A to Z with the surname of the author. Uh, there's some that uh, like to stack their books according to height or you've got your, you know, your paperbacks and your, your hardcovers. Uh, there's some who do it by genre or subject. And so you might have crime novels in one area and fantasy or sci-fi or your, your historical fiction or whatever it is. And there's some people who like to stack them in colour. This has been a, a recent trend where you've kind of got the rainbow colour blocks going on. Um, now, I won't share my judgments about who are the monsters desecrating their books for fear of offending. Um, but, however, if you are storing your books backwards, as in the next picture, I do think that I might have something to say, because that is a sacrilege. <laughs> this apparently is a new trend. But anyway, you can see that as, as people, we uh, group information differently. And so some people might have their young adult fiction in their cookbooks uh, together or separately or organise them chronologically. Whatever it is, we have different ways of curating information. And Mark does that too. Mark's collected all the information and all the stories about Jesus from Peter and he's arranged it in a way that communicates what he thinks is important. He hasn't corrupted the content, but he's just arranged it in a way that highlights the message of Jesus that he has received and that he's become convinced of. We saw this in his summary sentence at the very beginning of the book, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the beginning. It's not everything that Jesus has said or done or what he continues to do, but it's a good snapshot of who he is and why it's good news. And we've seen that over the last eight chapters, which we've kind of got a very quick glimpse of in this sermon series. Jesus has healed many. He's forgiven sin. He's uh, driven out impure spirits. He's calmed a storm, as we saw last week. He also raises the dead. He miraculously fed thousands and he walked on water. And we've seen his authority over sickness, over nature, over evil, over death, over the law, over the Sabbath, over sin. And it all shows that Jesus' authority is all-encompassing and without limits. And again and again, we've seen the people who witness his power say, who is this? What is this authority? We've never seen anything like it. But although they see what Jesus does, we get another theme running through Mark, which is that they see Jesus and what he does, but they don't see him clearly. They see what they want to see. The crowd see a miracle worker. The teachers of the law see a troublemaker, a blasphemer, and someone who is possessed by the devil even. His hometown thinks that he's crazy and they say, isn't this Mary's son, the carpenter? And even his own disciples are confused as we see in this passage. And Jesus has hinted at this in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower. And he says that, to quote Isaiah 6, that there will be some who may be ever seeing but never perceiving. There will be some who are hearing but never understanding. 
people's presumptions, their worries and their desires get in the way from seeing Jesus clearly. Uh, I remember when I was doing my honours thesis uh, a while ago, it was on the artistic and theological development of the cross as it was represented in an Australian art prize called the Blake Prize for Religious Art. And the grading assessment that I received was very positive until I got up to this line, which said, there is a kind of personal agenda which gets in the way of a more critical, objective and open-minded approach to the ideas being considered. Oof. And I thought to myself when I read that, if I'd, if I'd written this perhaps through a, a feminist lens or a Marxist lens or a, a gender queer theory lens, then I think this would have been applauded and I wouldn't have been criticised, but because it was more of a, a pro-Christian lens, even though I was commenting on a Christian subject matter, it was seen as subjective. And I found it interesting that my examiners thought that they were objective and open-minded and that I wasn't. And I think that that betrayed their own unconscious biases and points to the fact that, that none of us are purely objective. We're hearing more and more about cognitive bias and workplaces are bringing in training to help people to identify, identify it and to become more inclusive. And this is a really good thing. This is an important thing. We do need to examine our own biases and the lenses with which we interpret information. But it doesn't mean that there is no such thing as objective truth or that every perspective is equal. The various parts of the elephant, I'm sure you know this story, don't negate the fact that there is an overall animal. It is, in fact, not a tree or a snake or a rope, as the story of the blind man goes. And we shouldn't be satisfied with having a partial or limited understanding of what's true and real. So when we read the Gospel of Mark, we need to see... Uh, we need to see if what Mark says actually stacks up with what he's arguing, whether it's credible. Is it credible to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, as Mark claims? Well, the passage that we're looking at today brings this idea to a head, and it's actually the pivot from the first part of the book to the second. And as we'll see, there's some, uh, some understanding of who Jesus is, but there's some misunderstanding too. So let's take a look. There's two examples of blindness, one spiritual and one physical, as well as two examples of seeing. So firstly, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, and they realise that they've only brought one loaf of bread with them. Now, I've got four kids, and I know how far one loaf of bread goes... <laughs> It's not very far. <laughs> and to imagine that there's a boat filled with 13 full-grown men, I don't think that one loaf would cover them at all. Um, but Jesus tells them to be careful. He says, watch out. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, this is a bit of a, pe a peculiar statement. And, but it comes straight off the back of a confrontation that Jesus had with some Pharisees. They'd come to test him and they were demanding a sign from heaven. So this yeast that Jesus is referring to might have something to do with having a hard heart 
and missing just what the signs are pointing to about Jesus. And again, the disciples worry about literal bread, though. They're worrying about this bread. And you can kind of imagine Jesus face-palming as he says, why are you talking about having no bread? As he says, he's multiplied, multiplied five loaves for 5,000-plus people, as well as seven loaves for 4,000 people. You really don't need to worry about bread when you're with Jesus. So it seems that it's not only the bread that the disciples have forgotten about. And as we read this story, it's patently obvious to us, and perhaps we feel a bit exasperated about the disciples' blindness too. I do think, though, that the next two stories offer us a word of encouragement. So the first story is the blind man. It tells a story of the blind man who's brought to Jesus. And Jesus spits in his eyes and puts his hands on him and he asks, do you see anything? It's a really weird question from Jesus. All the way through Mark, Jesus has never shown any uncertainty. But the answer is even weirder. The man says that he can see people, but they look like trees walking around. And then Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes for a second time. And we read in verse 25 that his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he could see everything clearly. The second story is that of Jesus and his disciples. They're travelling to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they reply, saying that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. These seem to be uh, common ideas that are circulating around. And King Herod, in fact, was speculating about Jesus in Mark chapter 6. And the same options were proposed then too. These are all great and godly people who have done mighty things for God. But they're a poor comparison to Jesus. It's much like people today equating Jesus as a good moral example or a spiritual leader or a wise prophet. They just don't get close enough to the truth. The Bible does say that God will send Elijah before the day of the Lord. He says that in Malachi 4.5. And there was an expectation that since Elijah was carried off into heaven that he would return again. Jesus does do some incredible miracles like Elijah did, and he called people to repent the same way. But in the very next story we read in Mark that Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah are speaking with him. And there it's obvious that Jesus is not on par with them. And in fact, the Lord makes it abundantly clear when he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And there, and in Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist is equated with this preparatory role of Elijah in preparing the way for the Lord. John himself acknowledged that Jesus was far superior and he wasn't even worthy to untie uh, Jesus' sandals. The Bible also does say that God will raise up a prophet 
whom God will put his words in his mouth in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Jesus does speak God's words, but he is far greater than just a prophet. When Jesus teaches, it is with authority. He doesn't just interpret the law and the customs, he defines them. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, I tell you. Jesus is much greater than any prophet or biblical figure who has come before. And so Jesus turns to his disciples next and he asks them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Well, they've seen enough of Jesus to know that he's much more than a prophet. They've travelled with him and witnessed his holiness and his power and his love. And they've been thinking about this since chapter 4 when we read when he stilled the, the wind and the waves and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And so they conclude as Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. This is a groundbreaking moment. It's a shift in the narrative of Mark. So far in the story, only the Lord God and demons have recognised Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah, or Christ in Greek, it was God's anointed king, the promised ruler who would bring peace and justice. This is a moment of seeing, a moment of enlightenment. Actually, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is a moment of spiritual illumination. And yet, tragically, it doesn't last. For Peter has got Jesus' identity right, but he has not understood the significance nor the nature of Jesus' identity. Uh, you know, when you ask somebody what they do for work and they explain it to you and you still have no idea what kind of work they do and so you kind of nod and smile and you kind of pretend to understand? Um, you may have had to do that yourself to, to people when no one gets what you do. I know that there's a lot of you that um, have got some complex jobs here and you might try and work out a basic way of explaining your field of speciality or your research or your tech job or something that I've got no idea what, I, what you're saying. Um, and people, yeah, so people kind of get it, but they don't really get it. Well, much like that, Peter correctly understands who Jesus is, but he doesn't understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. He just doesn't get it. And so when Jesus plainly explains his messiahship, it still remains completely incomprehensible to the disciples. So we see this in verse 31. Jesus says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus explains what must happen to him. It's the first time, and he goes on to explain it another two times in the gospel. 
But this picture of the Messiah just doesn't compute with Peter. So he thinks he's doing Jesus a favour when he quietly takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Jesus, you've got it all wrong. I know the religious leaders are giving you a hard time, but you're the Messiah. You'll show them. You'll destroy all your opponents and defeat Rome, and and we can prosper under you as king. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. How kind of Peter. But you see, the disciples would have, have likely have read things like the Psalms of Solomon, which is a late first century apocryphal document that describes the Messiah like this. Here's a little snippet. O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel. Gird him with strength that he might shelter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. He shall destroy the godless nation with the word of his mouth. At his rebuke, nations shall fall before him. You get the idea about what they're thinking, don't you? The Messiah in their minds was this political champion, a victor that uh, was over everything that stood against the Lord and, and had conquered Later on in chapter 10, we we read that this is still the idea that they're picturing and that they imagine glory and power for the disciples of this Messiah. And even Jesus' title for himself, the Son of Man, that he mentions here, well, it alludes to a transcendent Messiah who in Daniel 7, we read, he comes with the clouds of heaven and he's given all authority and glory and, and sovereign power He has an everlasting kingdom and all nations and peoples worship him. This is the image of Messiah that they have. But Jesus reserves his strongest words for those who seek to make his Messiahship anything other than what God has ordained. He is a suffering Messiah a son of man who lowers himself before being lifted high. And so Jesus rebukes Peter's rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Strong words. You do not have the concerns of God's, of, but instead you have human self-interest. And in fact, glory without suffering is Satan's agenda. A kingdom without the cross will not save. You see, it's not enough to get some things about Jesus right. It's not enough to admire him as a revered spiritual leader. We can't shrink him down into a more palatable version that suits our own desires. Jesus has spoken plainly about who he is and what he came to do. And we either jump on board 100% or we're not his disciple. That's the choice that he gives us. For Jesus says that he must suffer and be rejected. He must be killed and after three days, rise again. It's not an option. 
It's the only way. And so Peter's confession shows that he, he gets Jesus, but he actually still doesn't get him at all. Just like the blind man, he sees things partially. You know, when I was younger and I read this story about Jesus healing in two stages, and I was really confused. It didn't make sense to me. But Jesus didn't fail the first attempt at healing the blind man and need to do it again to fix it up. That's what I thought. But he's, he's actually illuminating, um, he's illustrating, sorry, that enlightenment is a process of revelation, that it only comes from God. And the ability, ability to see both physically in the blind man and spiritually, as in Peter, is a gift from God that neither the blind man or Peter or any of the other disciples can claim for themselves. You see, there's a pattern between these two stories. There is the blind man and the disciples who have eyes that fail to see. And then Jesus touches the blind man and he partially sees, just like Peter who rightly confesses Jesus is the Messiah. And then they have clarity and sight, as Jesus reveals. And then at the end of the both stories, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. So they're parallel stories. And I take comfort in these stories because I often get Jesus wrong. I'm often slow to understand. Sometimes when I read these stories, I side with the disciples and I feel like Jesus is being a bit mean when they, when he, they fail to see who he is. Other times I'm thinking, how can they be so stupid? <laughs> it's obvious. But Jesus is patient with them. And he's patient with me. He's patient with you. He doesn't meet their lack of understanding with condemnation. He doesn't press them for blind faith. What does he do? He tells them to look and see. Don't you remember, he says, don't you remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000 and when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000? He points to the evidence of who he is. And he warns us, he warns us to be careful, to not get fixated on signs, but to see clearly who the signs point to. And finally, he calls us to follow him, this is true discipleship. Jesus called to the crowd along with his disciples and he said in verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's jumping in with both feet. It's leaving the old life behind, just as the disciples did. They left their nets, they left their father in the boat. And it's turning and following Jesus. And where? Where is Jesus heading? To the cross. That's where he's heading. For Mark's first readers, this story would resonate really powerfully with them. 
They're living during the time of Nero's crucifixion of Christians. They're suffering for the gospel. This discipleship, though, we need to be clear, it's it's not about having a martyrdom complex. To deny oneself doesn't mean to, to hate yourself or to forego your own needs, but rather it means to put Jesus at the center. It's about reorienting our life so that we cease to put self-gratification at the centre and we allow Jesus to take centre stage of our life. And when we do that, friends, we actually find that he, what he wants for us is better than we can gain by keeping him at the margins of our life or by rejecting him altogether. What Jesus offers to us is worth grabbing with both hands. Jesus goes on to say that we must give him exclusive allegiance. He will not accept a non-committal flirting with him, as though we keep Jesus as kind of a side option or a backup plan. You see, when we, what we make of Jesus, the discussion of who is Jesus, is it's not a topic of neutral philosophical speculation. What we make of Jesus will have a direct ramification on our life, on our eternal destiny. And so we see that there is a saving and a losing both ways. To lose your life, you'll save it. And to save your life, you will lose it. In the Lord of the Rings, at the very end of the story, Gollum is so consumed by the ring, his precious that he cannot forsake it. It has become his everything. And so Gollum renounces his loyalty to Frodo and he bites the ring from his finger. And when it's in his possession, he dances around triumphantly only to slip and fall into Mount Doom, still clutching the ring and shrieking out, my precious. I won't do the voice. So what or who is precious to you that you will not relinquish to put Christ at the centre of your life? What are you hanging on to so tightly that you will not put Christ at the centre? To pick up the story of the blind men and the elephant analogy again, God has made himself known. The good news has been revealed And like the elephant to the blind men, God isn't a mystery because God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. He's explained exactly who he is and what he came to do. That's what Mark's gospel tells us. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he came to suffer and to die and to rise again for sinners like you and I. Jesus isn't passive or silent, leaving us to guess in the dark. We can insist on something other than what he declares, but we'd be wrong. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, it is not healthy for, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. These are Jesus' own words. And so when we twist them to suit our own purposes, all we do is show that we haven't taken the time to know him or listen to him. It shows that we're still walking blind. Fanny Crosby is a woman who wrote thousands of hymns and songs. You might know some of her hymns, such as Blessed Assurance or To God Be the Glory. She became blind when she was six weeks old. She caught a cold and uh, she got inflammation in her eyes and they put a mustard plaster on her as a remedy and it didn't work. She was never able to see again. And once someone said to her, Fanny, I think it is a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts on you, that he did not give you sight. And Fanny replied, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be born blind? Why? exclaimed the questioner in surprise. Because, Fanny said, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my saviour. Fanny may have been born blind, but she could see Jesus clearly. And his beauty overshadowed everything else, including her physical blindness. Maybe your eyes have been dulled to the gospel over time. Maybe you don't grasp the full picture of who Jesus is and what he's calling you to be as his disciple. He wants to be so precious to you that you loosen your grip on everything else. Who do you say Jesus is? And who are you and what do you cling to? Let me pray. God, grant us eyes to see who you truly are and for us to respond appropriately to that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song now that there is no other name in heaven or earth by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God.